0: In 1971, Zef Siegel and two of his partners started what became Starbucks. At the time, he was a teacher that went through a special experience that ignited a little bit of passion for coffee. The mission was simple. From their first storefront in Seattle, Pike Place, if you're following Starbucks, they wanted to have the world's finest fresh roasted coffee, but also wanted to have a customer experience that would bring the customers back over and over again. and his partners, sold Starbucks around 10, maybe 15 years later. And since then, he's been busy touring the world, helping entrepreneurs to find their passion and become successful. If you know anything about me at all, you know I'm a huge coffee fan. So, while I'm interested to understand Zef's approach to entrepreneurship, and I'm going to try really hard not to talk about coffee, I think that's going to be a little hard for me. So, maybe a bit of a coffee
1: chat, and then the rest is business. Hi, Mo. Hey, Zev. how are you? Nice to meet you. Nice to
0: meet you. I've watched many of your videos. Well, you know, I like to talk then. (laughs) That's a good thing for a podcast, isn't it? (laughs) (laughs) So you've been traveling. And then what
1: happened? Every event in the world was canceled.
0: Yeah, right. And so you're really like the ultimate entrepreneur. So you had to pivot. Your entire life changed.
1: You know, Mo, I want to back you up a little bit there. I was a co-founder of Starbucks, and I was there for the first decade of the company. I am not the guy who put a Starbucks on every corner in the world. Okay. And neither are my partners. In the mid-80s, the company was sold to a group led by Howard Schultz. He's the guy who made it a worldwide company.
0: Yeah, I met Howard, actually, and he was quite
1: shrewd. Well, not only Shrewd, but uh, he's also just a fabulous communicator. Absolutely. (laughs) He's really good. Yeah. Yeah. He's good in front of an audience. He's fabulous one-to-one. You know, my world is small enterprise and especially startups that are learning that um, it isn't going to be all dreams and excitement. I love to help those entrepreneurs make their life a little better. And I do a lot of that work pro bono. You do? Oh, I do. Yeah. So tell me a few things here. One is...
0: So, you sold it 10 years later. What stage was the company at at the time?
1: No, actually, it was 14 years later. I was there for the first 10 years. My partner stayed for three or four more years. The company was a local company in Seattle. For the first 10 years, it was a coffee store chain. We sold whole bean coffee from bins, our own coffee. We roasted it. Wow,
0: interesting. Okay.
1: And um, it was uh, not a coffee bar chain until a little bit later. Starting in about 81, Starbucks began experimenting with the idea of a coffee bar, and there were several experiments. One of them involved Howard Schultz, who at that time had come to work for the company as the director of sales and marketing. Then in 84, I think, 84, 85, Howard Schultz put together a group of local angels and asked my partners if he could buy the company from them. That is incredible. And this is a good example of a very good hire. (laughs) (laughs) You want to hire somebody who will be your exit strategy. So as it turned out, Howard's timing was pretty good because Jerry Baldwin wanted to move to California and run a company that um, Starbucks had acquired. And Gordon Bowker really wanted to just have less distraction in his life. And I still don't know if Howard was surprised when they said, well, we can talk about that. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah,
0: I mean. But he might have been. 14 years in a business that is steady, you start to go like, you know, do I want to do this for the rest of my life or is an exit an interesting
1: idea? And that was the situation that my partners found themselves in. And Howard Schultz immediately reoriented the company toward coffee bars and pretty soon, like within a year, embarked on a growth strategy across uh, north america and then around the world
0: it was impressive
1: and the growth strategy was largely accomplished by joint venture partnerships with companies in each region of the world so why did you do it when you started
0: coffee was not your business at all right
1: no i was a teacher
0: yeah exactly
1: so wh- why did you do that and neither were your partners nobody was no gordon was a journalist we were young we were 26 27 years old and uh, jerry baldwin was teaching in a school for radio personalities and uh, disc jockeys, and also uh, working full-time for Boeing. And there was no, I'm sure you divined this from other conversations, but in 1970 71, there was no entrepreneurship culture. Zero. <laughs> totally. Yeah. I mean, there were no accelerators. Silicon Valley financing was just think—yeah, dream still. You know, it's nothing. And we started meeting and we were friends. You know, we'd see each other all the time, but we actually started getting together specifically to talk about changing our lives, to get more out of our lives. And we decided that that could be done by opening a business together. Not always a good choice. <laughs> Not always easy, but often a good choice. Yeah, one of the meetings was in an inexpensive French restaurant in Seattle. Uh, here's what happened. We're talking about all these great ideas we have, all of which were total. Either they were bad ideas or we were the wrong people to try and do them, one or the other. And the waiter at the end of the meal came back to the table and he said, would you gentlemen like to try espresso? We said yes, and then we looked at each other and said, that's a first. (laughs) 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 That that hadn't happened, uh, not in Seattle anyway. There just was no coffee culture whatsoever. Seriously. So he brought the coffee, three little cups of espresso, and eventually we took a sip and it was terrible. I think I'm correct when I say that you would never be served a cup of coffee like that today. Totally. The world has come a long way. So we did what uh, you would do. We switched from talking about whatever was on our minds at that moment to, what about the coffee business? Could we bring good coffee to Seattle? Could we do it? That led to a research project. You know, I think part of um, my commitment has to do with a man who was a mentor to me. Alfred Pete was the founder of Pete's Coffee. Ah. Which okay. is based in the San Francisco area. Yeah, of course. And he was about five years ahead of my partners and me. He was the only guy in North America who was operating a coffee roasting and retailing company that was any good. And he's still a legend in the Bay Area. And, you know, we've had the idea for coffee. So I started doing research and discovered that there was one company. So I called him, which is what I encourage entrepreneurs to do. Call him. Maybe he'll talk to you. And he invited me to come down and take a look. He said, before you guys do anything up there, you should come and take a look. That's so generous. Yeah. Magic moment, huh? And he didn't slam the phone down saying, I'm too busy to help you guys who just want to steal my ideas. So I went down there and saw one of his stores, big, beautiful, wonderful store, loved by all his customers. And then went to his little roasting plant and talked for probably an hour. And then he invited me to have a glass of wine with him at a restaurant in Berkeley. And at the end of that time, he sort of leaned over and said, you know, if you and your partners go ahead with this, I'd be happy to show you a few more things. Wow. What
0: a generous person. Um, Maybe you don't know this, but anyone who knows me knows that I'm very serious about coffee. And of course, growing up, all we had where I grew up was a Turkish coffee. You know, the very, very fine ground with herbs. That would be the Egyptian version of Turkish coffee. Egyptian version of Turkish coffee, which... Is that with cardamom and sugar? Absolutely. There you go. I don't take it with sugar, but cardamom for sure. And do you bring it to a boil three times or one time? No, 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 no. Egyptians, we don't destroy the little crema on the top. So we allow the coffee grind to go to the top and we keep it. So the Lebanese and Turkish and so on, they boil it. Yes. And that destroys that thick layer on the top. We keep the thick layer on the top.
1: It also changes the flavor of the coffee. It does. And to me... Don't tell the Turks that though.
0: <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, one, it's one of the most interesting topics when you meet a Turkish person is to tell them, hey, by the way, you know, our coffee is better than yours. <laughs> and always, always when I meet Israeli friends, for example, I'd say things like falafel was invented in Egypt. And you know, the whole idea, of where things came from. It's normally quite an entertaining conversation. But there was really no coffee culture at all. Other than that, I mean, coffee is quite big in the Middle East because it was associated with safety in the early years where people would walk across the desert, right? And if you, because of the Arabic chivalry, if you want, a tribe was obliged to welcome you for a meal but they were not obliged to keep you overnight for safety. And so the whole coffee component was if you were offered coffee after the meal, then you were welcome to stay. And so, so coffee became something that was really symbolic and interesting. And even in my early business years, being offered coffee in a business conversation meant that you're welcome and that we're probably going to reach a deal, which was really, really important. But then the whole idea of what you started from a place that didn't really believe in coffee. I mean, Italians had coffee for so many years, but they never made it that famous. It was really the start of a global movement, coffee becoming a $4 thing and coffee becoming a global culture. So it's that small conversation you have with a few friends that completely reshapes the world. And I think that's quite remarkable when you think about it.
1: Have you traveled in the the Gulf region in the last three or four years? Oh, yeah. I'm just stunned at the world of coffee in the Gulf region, particularly in Kuwait. You know, the absence of liquor bars and beer bars just drives all the young people to coffee bars, but mostly in the evening. Yeah. And I spent a morning when the bars were empty with a Kuwaiti friend going to coffee bars there. They were just fabulous. (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> It was really an exciting adventure. Yeah. And I've been to a few places like a Cafe Racer in Dubai that are just stunning.
0: Yeah, and it goes all the way. You know Armani cafes and, you know, uh, there are so many varieties of an experience and you're absolutely spot on. It's because of the absence of a bar, like a real bar.
1: Well, I think there's another factor, and people in North America have a hard time appreciating it, and that's the concept of um, what generally is called uh, Arab hospitality. Guests are treated really well in that part of the world. It's part of the honor.
0: Yeah, I think most people don't get that. But to us, you know how it is, you know, sometimes in the West, the car that you drive determines how successful or how appreciated in the society you are. I think this is also filtering the Middle East for sure now, but the core, core teachings is that if you want to be viewed as a respectable member of society, hospitality is the way to show it. And so you would walk the streets of Egypt, where I come from, and the people are so beautiful, where people who have very little will invite you over and give you all that they have for dinner. And that's literally like the week's supply. But they will still do it because you're a guest and, you know, guests have to be welcomed.
1: I don't think the hospitality that I've been extended cost anybody a meal the next day, but um, (laughs) these are fairly substantial, wealthy people. But wow, there's just nothing like that in the United States, I'll tell you. So it's a very
0: interesting story. You started a movement and that movement became one of the most influential companies in the world. But then you left it 10 years into it. Before it became a substantial movement. Before it became the movement. And it's quite interesting for me. So first of all, would you do this again? If you do it again, would you do it differently? How does it feel to look at a Starbucks around every corner, knowing that you started it, but that you probably are not the player that got it to every corner?
1: I'm pretty thrilled about the success of Starbucks around the world, in part because they've done it at a very high quality standard when I go overseas, I take care of whatever business I've arrived there for. And then I go looking for coffee bars, sometimes for several days. And I go to the independents, the small companies, local companies. I also go to one or two of the Starbucks, wherever I am. And Starbucks quality is really high. That makes me Definitely. really happy. Yeah. And Starbucks is a company that was very, very different in its first decade. We sold coffee beans rather than coffee beverages. But there are a couple of things that are the same. One is the mermaid. <laughs> she lives on when the mermaid started in 1971. And the other is quality standards and employee training and an attitude toward customers. You know, the attitude that we tried to imbue in our staff and certainly tried to demonstrate it ourselves is uh, we want a, a long-term relationship with everybody who comes through the door. And, Once you have that assumption, that goal, that you want years and years of coffee relationships with these people, it changes how you behave. Correct. The details don't matter much, but the underlying approach, this is a long-term relationship that changes everything.
0: And is that something that you believe today's entrepreneurship captures at all?
1: Let's finish up with uh, Starbucks and the independent coffee bars. I think that the uh, third wave coffee bars and other independent coffee bars around the world are pretty good at that. They tend to be a little egocentric and product oriented, but they do something that uh, my partners and I and our staff did uh, from the beginning, which is they try to educate customers. You know, the barista covered in tattoos in London. If you ask one question about coffee, like what blender are you using today? (laughs) <laughs> or something inane like that, they will unload on you with information. Yeah. They cannot wait for you to ask a question about coffee. And I love that. I just oh, I just Talk love that you. passion. I just love that. But in terms of how I feel about the unbelievable growth of Starbucks, I'm a happy guy. You're a man who's interested in happiness, and I know who I am. You know, I'm a startup, early stage kind of guy, always have been. When there's 100 employees, I get really nervous. (laughs) (laughs) I know that feeling. (laughs) And frankly, like many entrepreneurs, I am somewhere on the ADHD scale. I have a short attention span, and I've worked with hundreds of young entrepreneurs And I see that in a lot of them. (laughs) And I think that one of the reasons that entrepreneurship comes up as an option for so many people is that they aren't getting along very well in big organizations. Correct. Absolutely. They feel constrained or hemmed in or for some of them, it makes them a little bit crazy. You know, your boss's boss says something that upsets something you've been working on for two years. Well, after that happens a couple of times, you start, if you're totally an entrepreneur-oriented person, you're going to try and do something where that won't. Yeah,
0: I, I need an environment where there is no boss that changes what I've been working on for two years.
1: And I think for some entrepreneurs, I include myself in this group, it needs to be a smaller environment where there's less noise. Yeah. I mean, not literally noise, less uh, distractions, yeah. far fewer egos.
0: Yeah. You know what I find amazing? It's because this is a topic that I write about and I speak about a lot. The idea that we sometimes categorize things like ADHD and sort of call it a medical condition that needs to be fixed, when in reality, I can see that so many people have that as a quality, right? Of course, too much of anything is a bad place to be. But in reality, I think the capability of someone to embrace paradoxes to try things to be creative to pivot to change direction that doesn't come with a very stubborn linear mind that is basically not that main character of an entrepreneur and it pains me because sometimes we tell people they're not good enough because they don't fit the mold of the corporate world that education has been building us to fit in
1: yeah it is painful mo but that's why we have graduates in finance um, <laughs> yeah <laughs> because they're very comfortable in structure <laughs> uh-huh.
0: yes they 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 can get us back to where we need to be when we deviate,
1: yes, yeah, by the way, that's uh one of the success factors in the early days of Starbucks, and it's a sort of a theme that I've adopted in working with um young entrepreneurs. Uh, one of my partners, Jerry Baldwin, evolved very quickly into a very good um financial manager, doing forecasts and um you know day to day management i'd say after our first year starbucks always knew what its cash position was and what it was going to be next month and well this is this is the key to surviving a company's infancy and it really makes a difference and there is a strong role i like to make fun sometimes of graduates in finance but there is an important role for them in totally. any company including a startup company
0: totally especially by the way in, in nowadays with covid-19 Getting pushing so many companies to the brink of really not having enough to survive, good financial leadership makes the biggest difference ever.
1: Yeah, I had an experience during March and April that just was mind-blowing. I got to see Seattle with no coffee bars. <laughs> that's interesting. They all closed. Yeah, They were ordered closed. Yeah, of course. Along with all of the other food and beverage locations. They've gradually begun to open now. Yeah, COVID is changing the business landscape. It's going to require tremendous agility on the part of entrepreneurs. I mean, there are some sectors, almost anything online still has a good shot at success, if it's a good idea. But brick and mortar, whoo, like, for instance, coffee bars. Yeah. Wow, I'm worried that, that there'll still be coffee bars, but the original owners won't be there anymore. They'll have gone bankrupt.
0: I think that's quite possible. Most hospitality will probably be in a very unenviable place, yeah.
1: Yeah. People will buy the assets for tremendous discount and reopen. Really sad. So tell
0: me, why do you do this? Why why do you want to help so many entrepreneurs? Why do you help them for free?
1: You know, I've been thinking about this because I knew I was going to talk with you, Mo. And I asked myself, you know, the Mo question, what makes me happy? And there are a couple of things that make me happy. One is learning. And I find that my um, clients and young entrepreneurs that I interact with at events and online and, are pretty good teachers.
0: Yeah, true.
1: As long as I'm a receptive student. One of the problems, of course, with many mentors is they don't want to listen, which is hilarious because mentors are very fond of saying that I only work with people who will listen. (laughs) Exactly. (laughs) It's a riot. I've seen some other mentors who just wouldn't stop talking. And uh, oh, I just love to listen to the people I work with, whether it's something they're doing that's fabulously insightful or something they're doing that is just going to come close to killing their business, I get a lot of um, excitement out of listening to them. Obviously, if they're, something that's killed their business, I will start asking questions. I won't tell them what to do. I've never told anybody your idea won't work. Not what a coach or a mentor is supposed to do. You Just ask them questions that they need to find the answers to and let them find out it won't work.
0: Man, that is a nugget of gold right there as a matter you of think fact so? oh absolutely i find it amazing how i don't want to call it arrogance but i find it amazing how even in relationships in parenting in everything we think that we know the answers we think that we know everything that i've seen it before it works this way you're going to tell me a problem i'm going to blabber out three sentences and you're done right now the truth is every situation is different And every person and individual is different. And the answer is, quite interestingly, not always the same. And, you know, if we can just afford to listen a little bit and maybe not even suggest an answer, maybe even have the person ask if that answer is working or not. And maybe instead of saying yes or no, you ask a couple of questions and then life becomes much clearer to the person who's being asked rather than being told.
1: You know, pretty often um, people will say, uh, You don't look your age, Sev. You don't, Sev, by the way. You know, you just did it too. <laughs> uh, you don't look your age, Sev. And I do look my age. I have friends who are my age and I know how they look. They don't look their age either. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe that's true, Mo. I think the difference is that I'm still a very open minded guy. And I think other people are often a lot smarter than I am. Or in some cases, even though I have a lot of experience, especially with uh, the startup phase of small enterprises. I learn something every week, you know, and and I try to make a point of doing that. And I think that's why people mistake me for somebody younger is because I ask questions rather than making statements. I will tell you,
0: I think that's the smartest thing anyone can do. So maybe your statement of others are smarter than I am. I actually believe that completely. I believe everyone is smart differently. I think the smartest thing to say is to get every smart person to, contribute a tiny little bit to your smarts. So you told me there were two reasons why you do this. One is you want to learn. The other is?
1: The other is I really like to make it possible for people to avoid smacking into some of the hurdles in life. And my little zone happens to be startup businesses. So when I'm engaged with a 30-year-old man or woman who is working on a forecast and has a great idea and that kind of stuff, One of the things that I really enjoy is enabling them to avoid smashing into a brick wall or tripping on a hurdle. One of the things I've said to a couple of people is, life is tough enough without a little help. Yeah, (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. And it's doubly true in business. I'll give you an example. I'm working with um, a 30-year-old couple. They're in Spain, and they're working on a web platform that's driven by a uh, phone app. I don't want to get into the details of it. That's beside the point. And um, they're talking to investors right now. They have a very good presentation and they are themselves good presenters. They do well in front of audiences online or in person. And um, we were talking about, um, they had described to me a particular investor, an angel who was kind of influential, somebody they wanted to get on board because other people would follow him, you know, all that stuff. So they described him to me and, and I took a guess. I said, there's a great possibility that this fellow would be influenced if you enabled him to come and see how you do what you do. You know, meet your team, see your setup. It would give him something to talk about. If you can do it, try and get him to come and visit you in person. So the next session, two weeks later, <laughs> he said, boy, did that work. <laughs> it turned out this guy had nothing to do and he was really excited to come and be in the midst of some young people who had tremendous energy and a very rough looking office. You couldn't believe how rough their office was and got very excited about their company. I mean, that's just one little tiny little hint that I gave them when they said that they were worried about this guy. And I love that. That makes me really happy when somebody calls or writes and says, remember when you were asking me questions about my forecast? And we found a problem. I said, of course I do. And they will say, well, it's a good thing that we did that. Because when I went to talk to this venture capital guy, he had his finance guy come in the room. And if we hadn't fixed that, he would have found it. (laughs) There you go. And if he had found it, you wouldn't have had the investment. And that's a simple. Oh, that's the end of the meeting. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. That's my happiness is getting that feedback. The interaction between me and a young entrepreneur actually helped them a little bit. That's
0: amazing. That's wonderful. On that note, I would actually remind everyone listening to us that we're trying to make others happy with this podcast. So if you're with us, you must like it. And please uh, do that. Make others happy by sharing and telling them to join our community for more interesting conversations. Zev, I want to ask you about the current times. So it's quite interesting for me because we call it unprecedented. I think most of us who have been in business long enough have seen tough times similar and different than what we're going through what would be your top advice for someone today who is an entrepreneur with a business that is struggling do you tell them to stick around a little longer to close it to try again what's the current situation dictating to us
1: Well, there's a methodology I would recommend. It works in a lot of situations. It's a very simple method. If it's an existing business and it's been heavily impacted by the pandemic, I would say pull yourself together for a few minutes. (laughs) Not an easy thing to do when you're panicked. And uh, sit down with uh, someone who really knows spreadsheets and particularly knows uh, business spreadsheets. And take your current financial situation, like, for instance, your profit and loss statement or cash flow for the last 30, 60 days, and forecast it. And just do the numbers. Don't start crying. Just stay focused on the numbers. How many customers? What's the average purchase? What about the cost of money? You know, all that stuff. And see if you can find a way out. But just stay focused on those little boxes in the spreadsheet. Yeah. Because those boxes take the terror out of the situation.
0: Yeah.
1: And this is the same advice I give people who are starting companies that have a chance for success, just fill in all the boxes. And after you've done that, try and improve the information, the data that you used by asking other people, by doing research, monitoring your competitors, etc. I really find it's very helpful to just not wave your arms, you know, and talk about uh, what might be about the vice president, who's your buddy, who's underperforming and all that. Leave that out. Just look at the numbers. And especially today, I I think it's really important because in some cases, it isn't going to be possible to continue as you have been operating. Maybe what you need is a new equity partner. And instead of owning 70% of your company, you're going to wind up owning 50% of your company
0: but you'll still be in business. Instead of owning 70 of nothing, 70% of nothing.
1: Yes, exactly. And these are the kinds of things, Mo, that show up when you just try and do, step back from the emotions of the situation and just try and do the numbers. It often takes the help of another person, like an accountant or a finance person.
0: And if you have had an idea to be an entrepreneur for a while, do you think this is a good time to start?
1: I don't think it's a bad time. Now, clearly, uh, you wouldn't want to do anything that had to do opening a company that provides services to airlines. <laughs> I don't think so. That's a good idea. Food and beverage, only under special circumstances. Maybe there is a business that hasn't done takeout that you are sure could be converted profitably to takeout. Yeah, then maybe you could talk about it. But many other types of businesses, phone apps, software, especially niche software, where you have some knowledge. Let's say you've been in the solar industry and you know that distributors of solar panels who sell to the installers have a special problem that their operating software isn't solving and you've got the answer. Oh, hell yes. I'd try and go a little further with that one. And it has to be something that meets a need that consumers still have. And the consumers might be other businesses. It might be a B2B type of operation. There are needs there.
0: You seem to be quite logical about those things. Some coaches of entrepreneurs sort of prioritize passion.
1: Oh yeah, passion. Follow your dream, or as Nike used to say, just do it. Just do it is not a business strategy. Right? I mean, okay, interesting. So for solar panel
0: suppliers, an app that solves a problem, you can't lie to yourself and say, I'm passionate about that. It's just
1: it's a business. Oh, if you've been working for a solar panel distributor, if you've been the IT department for a company uh, you know, in um, Florida, and um, you really are pretty savvy about the information technology problem in that industry, I'd say you're in a good position to make a judgment, of, at least to begin to do the business plan and the research. Still doesn't necessarily mean you're going to end up being passionate about it. I say this with one reason because
0: I am actually, of course, I talk a lot about topics that involve the heart, you know, involve our emotions, you know, happiness, compassion, empathy, uh, our ability to be ourselves, to connect with ourselves. These are all not so strictly logical topics sometimes. But I think it's important to go back to the idea that some things require an attitude, an approach that is identical to what you just described. Stick to the facts. Take the emotions out. Take the crystal ball approach of predicting what politician is going to do or how the virus is going to behave out and just do what you have to do. Be factual. You know, if there is an opportunity in an industry that doesn't require emotions to be successful in it, you're a business
1: person. Mo, oh, that sounds so sad. <laughs> is it? I think that there's a lot of happiness and emotion that comes from identifying a problem and solving it. Okay, so that becomes your passion then. I want to solve problems. Yeah, and it's, we can go back a few years to when self-actualization was the all-important goal before there was anything to do with social good in business. People thought that self-actualization, taking your talents to the ultimate level, that, that was the most important thing. Well, there is something to that. I am with you. It needs to be tamed. It has to be something that's good for the world. But you can get quite a thrill and a lot of passion out of seeing your little business baby succeed. Even if the business itself is something that you would never discuss while having beers with your friend because it's too boring for them. Yeah, I'm
0: totally with you on that. I think you're saying what I'm saying in a different way. I think that we find our passion in the way we do things, not necessarily in what it is that we do. Sometimes raising your children can be a demanding job. It doesn't have to be all fun and excitement all the time, but there is a time when you have to double down and do what you have to do so that we can all proceed and do better. Sadly, however, we are on time. So I will say I love the idea that you find so much joy in making others happy and in making others successful and making others avoid hitting big obstacles that will hurt. And I think, you know, whenever I meet someone who looks at the world this way, I wish that the world will reward them with a lot of happiness and a lot of satisfaction, and hopefully people that will help them avoid obstacles if obstacles come their way. So that's my wish for you, Zer.
1: Thank you. I find that, Mo, that helping other people is extremely rewarding for me, and sometimes it's helpful to them. (laughs)
0: <laughs> That's a wonderful way to say it. Thank you so much for your time, Deb. That was really, really wonderful.
1: You're welcome, Mo. I'm glad that we had this time together.
0: And for all of you who joined us, thank you so much for listening. Be sure to follow me on social media. Search for Mogaudat, Slow Mo, Gaudet, Soul for Happy, or One Billion Happy. I know you've got a lot going on, but remember, there is always time to slow down. Until next time, stay happy.